Ricardo, and thank you, Keisha and Nancy and Sarah, for leading us in worship this morning. And let's uh, pray, and uh, as we reflect on God's word and move into the message this morning. Lord God, we thank you that you've given us your word. We thank you that we can sing and worship and adore you. We can behold you as you reign and as your son, Lord Jesus Christ, is interceding for us. And so we come to you, Father, boldly by the power of your spirit through your son, Jesus Christ, and ask that you would bless this time of worship and fellowship that we have here together this morning. God, it's a privilege to be here uh, in your presence. And we pray that you would reveal yourself to us that you would remove me from the message, that you would allow your word to be all that's remembered. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I don't know if anyone else noticed, but the furnace is definitely on this morning. (laughs) So if you see me take my jacket off halfway through, you know why. (laughs) Uh, It's good to be back. We were uh, away last week visiting another church, and I was doing some things with ABWE. And so it's good to be worshiping here together with you again this morning. And just as a refresher, we are in this new series, The Gospel of the Kingdom, A Journey Through the Gospel of Mark. And why are we walking through this? In part, we're leaving a season of transition that we've had, and we're entering into a new season. And by God's grace, he's led Wesley Bunting to us to serve as pastor. But moving into this new season and new transition, uh, Ricardo and I in particular were talking and realizing, you know, we've spent so much time in the epistles, so much time with direct apostolic teaching and things like that, but we haven't taken the time to reflect on the story in a while, the narratives that are in Scripture. And so what we want to do through this series, and particularly this morning, is simply see who Jesus is and then reflect upon the response that he demands from us. So we just want to Behold him and stand in awe of him. And so that's our main aim this morning. And you'll see it in the outline that's provided to you. Our central way of summarizing and encapsulating this text is that Jesus is, and there's three things here. Jesus is first approved by the Father. Ricardo mentioned that last week. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll re- uh, review that briefly. He's afflicted in the flesh, and third, he's given full authority to bring the kingdom of God to earth and call us into it through repentance and faith. So just to set the stage for you all, Mark has a few introductory accounts that he's giving of Jesus here, and you see some of these very brief glimpses, snapshots into the life of Jesus. Mark punctuates almost everything that he writes with this word immediately, and you see that kind of bridging each little account here. But we're wrapping up some of those introductory accounts and moving into his early Galilean ministry, which ends in chapter 6 as Jesus is rejected in this northern part of Israel and withdraws. Now, some commentators, and if you follow the Gospels very closely, you'll notice that there might be some issues here. It's hard to harmonize what's going on because if you were reading John's Gospel first, it would look like Jesus began his ministry in Judea, in Jerusalem. You look at Mark here, and it looks like the first thing Jesus did in public ministry was to the north in Galilee. And in fact, the the synoptic gospels as a whole kind of describe the ministry of Jesus as gradually moving towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. So is there an error here? There are no errors here, but we have to recognize that each of the gospel writers have their own intents, purposes, and aims in the information that they present to us. And so whatever else Jesus may have been doing before 
or after these accounts that Mark here describes, we have to realize that Mark has a purpose, and I think we'll see that this morning. What Mark gives us is just a beautiful outline of what Jesus undergoes and the ways in which he serves as our pattern. But last week, Ricardo shared with us how Jesus is, is baptized in verses 9 through 11. And I'll just read verse 11. A voice came from heaven, you'll recall, and he said, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So why is Jesus baptized? He has no sins to repent of. He's baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And Matthew chapter 3, verse 15 gives us that that he obeyed God's law and all of his commands perfectly so that he could attain a perfect righteousness that he gives to us as a gift so that we stand in him as if we lived perfectly and obeyed all of God's laws. That is such good news. Every imperative that God lays on us has first and foremost been fulfilled already in Christ. So Jesus is approved by the Father, and that's the first thing that we see here. But we will move to the next point in a moment, but just notice that Jesus, as our pattern, is approved by the Father, and we too begin here in our lives as Christians. See, we're loved by God in Christ first, before we do anything to deserve it, before we go out and embark on ministry. Any of the things that Jesus does throughout the rest of the book of Mark, we see that it starts here with his Father's approval. And in like fashion, God knew us before the foundation of the earth. God sovereignly chose of people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And he elected them. He chose to draw them to himself. He set his special love and affection on them. And so we have this love and approval of our Father in heaven, in Christ, before we ever do anything publicly or privately in ministry or otherwise that we think would ever earn his favor. So this is where we start. We start in our identity in Christ. And you'll notice there's a reference here in verse 11, this phrase that the Father uses in heaven, you are my beloved son, and with you I'm well pleased. And there's an echo of Psalm chapter 2, and hopefully if you were paying attention during our call to worship this morning, you heard that echo in there, that the Father says to the royal son, represented in David, but pointing towards Christ in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And there's a reason for this. Remember, the importance of Psalm 2. We'll return to it in a moment. But it starts with Jesus being approved by his Father. But second, and this is where I want to spend more of our time this morning, Jesus moves from the approval of his Father, and then in verse 12, Jesus is afflicted in his flesh. He's approved by his Father, and then he's afflicted in his flesh. Now the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So notice three things. I want to notice the who, the what, and the where that are happening in verse 12. So let's start with the who. It says, the Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. So this is a work of the Holy Spirit. So as soon as Jesus receives the Holy Spirit at his baptism, what happens? He doesn't immediately go off onto some spiritually victorious, cathartic experience, right? As we often associate being filled with the Spirit with just these emotional ex... ex, I can't talk today. (laughs) The word there isn't even coming to mind. I apologize. Uh, But we, we often associate the coming of the Spirit with these ecstatic emotional experiences. 
Instead, the first thing that the Holy Spirit does is drive Jesus into the wilderness. So this is God's will. This isn't a work of the enemy. Now, it's true that God doesn't tempt people with sin. We know that from James chapter 1, verse 13. God doesn't bring the desire to sin, the temptation to sin, directly into one's life. And we see in verse 13, it was Satan that was the one tempting Jesus. And we know this from seeing the fuller accounts of Jesus' temptation in the other Gospels. God isn't directly tempting Jesus with sin. But God is sovereign over the circumstances in which Jesus faces this trial and this temptation. So it's actually a work of the Spirit to immediately drive him into the wilderness. And why? Why does he drive him out there for this temptation? There's many reasons we'll get into them, but one of them has to do with what Hebrews 5, verse 8 tells us, that Jesus, even though he was a son, even though he was the son of God, he was already perfect, he was sinless, he still learned obedience through what he suffered. See, Jesus still had to be put in a position to have to actively practice obedience to the will of his father when he took on human flesh. And we'll get into more of that in a moment. But it's the spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness. And what did he do? The Spirit drove. He didn't just lead. He didn't just suggest that Jesus head to the wilderness. He actively drove him. He forced him into the wilderness. This doesn't mean Jesus was unwilling. But there is a degree of force here. We should realize that there's strength in this word. The word here is used 11 times by Mark in the context of exorcisms, driving a demon out of someone. That's the force that's intended behind this word. It's a forceful action. The Spirit does this powerfully in Jesus, bringing him to the wilderness for a purpose. And where does he go? Well, in saying that he was in the wilderness for 40 days, any Jew hearing this would have immediately made connections. This is what we call typology. We see that there are types, there are foreshadows in the Old Testament of who Christ would be, what he would do. And people would have instantly made these connections. What are some of these connections? Jesus is 40 days in the wilderness. Much like Elijah, who was on Mount Sinai in the wilderness for 40 days as a part of his ministry that involved reinstituting God's law that the kings were rebelling against. You see that in 1 Kings 19. So Jesus is the better Elijah, the chief of the prophets. Jesus is the better David. You'll recall uh, that David spent a long period of his his life running from Saul in the wilderness. And you see that all throughout 1 Samuel 24 through 27. It's this longer period, but he's running from Saul in the wilderness before he arrives into his royal authority. Jesus is the better Israel. Israel was in the wilderness wandering for 40 years after their baptism through the Red Sea. They were baptized, and they went out into the wilderness for 40 years, being judged, disciplined by God for having disbelieved the report of the spies, telling them, go, take the land. They didn't, and so they spent 40 years in the wilderness. Well, Jesus is the perfect Israelite. And it says the angels were ministering to him, and we're reminded that we see in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, that angels were with Israel all throughout their time in the wilderness. Angels were a part of mediating the law to Moses, and they were protecting Israel throughout their sojourning in the desert. Moses, Jesus is the better Moses. Moses, we know, spent 40 years in exile in Midian before arriving into his public ministry. Jesus is the better Noah. 
who spent 40 days during the rain surfing the watery wastes of water that were covering the earth. It was a wasteland of its own of sorts. There's 40 days that the rain fell, Genesis 7 tells us. But most importantly here, on top of Jesus being the fulfillment of all of these types, all of these significant figures in the Old Testament, Jesus is the better and new Adam. See, Adam was tempted by Satan. Adam fell. In Adam's fall, sinned we all, is the expression that we often use to reflect the fact that Adam, as our federal head, as the head of the covenant, see, he was the head of humanity, and in his sin, the entire human team was penalized for his sinful actions. And Jesus comes as the prophesied snake crusher who's undoing the work of the enemy. There's a twofold effect that Adam's fell had on, on us all. One is that it plunges us all into sin. But the second is that it plunges us into subservience to Satan. And I want you to hang on that thought for a moment, because we'll see how that's dealt with as Mark carries on. But this twofold effect here, see, Adam was not only in perfect fellowship with God in the garden, Adam was also on God's behalf supposed to rule over the garden and from there spread God's glory and take dominion over the world to be fruitful and multiply. That was Adam's mandate. And the fall not only severed his relationship with God, it also made it impossible for him to rule the world in the way that God originally intended. But Jesus is the new and better Adam here. Romans 5.19 says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. He undoes what Adam does. Hebrews 4.15 We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Has anyone ever been tempted? I know I have. And Jesus is a compassionate and gracious and merciful high priest. He faced temptation. He knows what it's like to be weak as we're weak. Let me just pause here. There's a few applications I think we can draw from this particular truth for our lives as Christians. First is that, and we've referenced this already, that we go in our Christian experience from approval to affliction. See, there's a period early in the Christian life where you're tasting what it's like to be loved, by, to be approved by the Father. You're experiencing the gospel. It's new to you. It's precious to you, more precious than it's ever been. And you think, this is so good. And you look at the other Christians around you that have been saved for so long, and you're like, guys, how can you not realize how good this is? And the problem is that we often do allow our love to grow cold. But we first taste and experience the approval of God, knowing that he chose us in Christ from before the foundations of the earth. And we're just experiencing in time the results of the fact that Christ came and died for us specifically by name as those foreknown and chosen by the Father. And yet, where do we inevitably go in our Christian lives? Not just from one glory to another, not just from victory to victory without any suffering, but we move from approval to affliction as well. God leads us into, leads us into trials. Not because he hates us, not because he's spiting us, but out of love. Hebrews 12, 6, God scourges every son whom he receives. Those of us who are parents in the room know that if you love your children, you'll allow them to experience some difficulty, some discipline, some hardship. 
And what's true of Christ is true of us who are in Christ, is that we start with our standing in the Father. But that often means that experientially, he will move us into difficulty, into trial, into affliction. That doesn't mean that he's removed his affection from us. Remember, it's the Spirit who drove Jesus into the wilderness. It's not as though the Father stopped paying attention to Jesus, and then Satan took over, and then God had to step in and rescue him at the end of the 40 days. It was part of God's will for Jesus. How much more might that be a part of his will for us, too? We, too, go from approval to affliction. Second point of application from this is that God uses means. Again, we cannot say, as James 1 reminds us, hey, God is tempting me. God, why are you putting these desires to sin in front of me? It's not something that God does. He's sovereign. He ordains the circumstances, the events. He controls everything. All that comes to pass is a part of the sovereign will and decree of God, but he uses secondary means. He's not directly causing you to sin. Don't ever accuse him of doing that. He ordains and allows and uses the circumstances. There are secondary causes that are real in the world. God is not the author of evil. He's not the author of the temptations that we face, but he won't allow us to face them without giving us a way of escape, 1 Corinthians tells us. So if you're, leading, if you're being led into a, a season of trial, a season of temptation, you're finding it very easy for you to want to say yes to a particular sin, don't turn and use that as ammunition against God to say, well, you've put me in this set of circumstances, so therefore I have the right to give way to bitterness, to give way to anger to give way to lust, pornography, whatever it is. God, you've put me here. You know what I'm facing. Don't turn that around on him. And third, and this has been implicit so far, but let's make it explicit, which is that to be led by the Spirit is not to live a life of ease. We often assume that it is. When we talk about life in the Spirit, we associate it with victory, with emotional ex. I can't say that word again. (laughs) Ecstasies. There you go. Thank you. (laughs) But Romans 8 says that we'll be glorified with Christ provided that we suffer with him. So to experience joy and glory in Christ also means that we endure with him as well. To be led by the Spirit isn't to be led into a life of ease and comfort. It's to be led into the wilderness, into a war zone, into conflict, into combat. The Christian life is supposed to be difficult. If you're finding it difficult to follow Jesus, to share the gospel, to say no to sin every day, well, just realize that that's not a bug, that's a feature of the Christian life. So these things are applying to us, they're true for us, but Jesus is not merely a moral example for us to follow, that's clear. So Jesus did endure temptation here so that he could be compassionate towards us as our high priest, but not just so that he could empathize with us. He had his own purpose in doing these things as well. He's not just a pattern for us. The point of this isn't so that we should look at this and say, well, maybe I should go out into the desert and fast for 40 days. That's not the point. This is about the gospel. This is about what Christ did that no one else could do. And we see that Mark instantly takes us into the gospel in verse 14. Now, after Jesus was arrested, excuse me, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the word, proclaiming the gospel of God 
and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. See, the reason that Jesus endures temptation on our behalf is because he is that new and better Adam. And that's integral to this gospel that Mark is pointing us towards. He is what we could never be. He is what Adam could never be. He is what Israel could never be. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. He stares down sin and Satan in the eye, and he says no on our behalf. And his obedience is applied to us. And so we are to receive him. We want to reflect on Jesus. We want to stand in awe of what he's doing here. Look at his power in saying no to Satan and to sin. We should look at that. We should stand in awe and we should receive that into ourselves. That's what it is to have faith in the gospel. But here's a question. Why is it that as soon as Mark brings us to the next section, that Jesus is preaching the kingdom? He's proclaiming the gospel of God. It's this good news that's from God. It's about God. But what is the content of that gospel? Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. What does that have to do with the gospel? I thought the gospel was about how I can be saved. What's that got to do with the kingdom? Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. And Matthew, the evangelist, gives us a more detailed account of the temptation of Christ. So I want to look at his third temptation in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Not sure how this happened, if teleportation is involved, but Satan is with Jesus surveying all the kingdoms of the world. Okay, are you following verse 9? And he said to them, all of these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And then we're told the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Just as Mark records that same thing. But here's the question. Why didn't Jesus just respond, Satan, you can't make that offer. You have no right to give people the nations. You're not in charge. Wouldn't we have responded in a similar situation based off of the knowledge that we have? See, there is a sense in which this is actually not an entirely empty offer on Satan's part. It's not an entirely empty offer. In a limited sense, Satan prior to the work of Christ, had dominion over the world, over the nations. Deuteronomy 32 recounts the Tower of Babel. It says God gave the nations over to these false gods, these demons. He apportioned them out. That's why they're all idolaters. God's given them over to these principalities, these powers. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan is the, quote, God of this world, lowercase g, and that he's the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. Satan had sway over the world. He's this prosecutorial attorney in the courtroom of God using our sin against us. And because the world is in sin and rebellion against God, he's able to wield that and to exercise leverage and dominion over the world. Now, God is king, amen? As Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. He's sovereign over him. But in a limited sense, Satan had real dominion and authority. The, empty to, the, the offer to Jesus was not empty in itself. 
even see in verse 13, there was wild animals, wild beasts in the wilderness. And that's just reminding us that Jesus is facing this temptation from Satan east of Eden now. They're not in the garden anymore. This is a world that's under the dominion of Satan. It's not this peaceful, tranquil garden environment. There's beasts in this wilderness wasteland. And then Jesus moves and talks about the kingdom in verse 15. And why is that? It's because he's wresting out of Satan's hand this kingdom and dominion that Satan had tried to tempt him with in the previous temptation. You got that? See, he moves from affliction to authority. And our third point, Jesus is given full authority over the kingdom in verse 14 in the verses that follow. He's retaking, reclaiming Satan's domain. See, now that he's faced down Satan, he said no. Now he's setting everything right. What were those two effects that Adam's sin had on us all? Not just that it severed our relationship from God, but also that it made Adam unable to rule the world in the way in which God desired. And Jesus is restoring both of those things. He's redeeming people out of sin. And we know the gospel is about forgiveness of sins. He's also now able to rule as Adam never did. And so now he's able to announce the kingdom of God is at hand. He undoes both sin and our subservience to Satan. There's a few clues that this really is what's going on in the passage. First, we mentioned Psalm 2 at the beginning. That the psalmist records today, the father saying to the son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. But the very next verse, verse 8, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And you will rule them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Immediately after the approval of the royal son in Psalm 2, you have the son being given authority to rule the nations. Another clue is that in verse 14, Jesus starts his ministry in Galilee. Ricardo referenced this last week that in Isaiah 9.1, Galilee is called Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee of the nations. See, this is why, whereas maybe John starts with some of these early stories of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem and Judea, Mark starts us out in Galilee, in the north, in this Gentile place. Why? Because it's signaling the fact that Jesus is beginning his divine royal reign in hostile territory. In pagan Gentile territory, largely speaking. And what's interesting is if you continue to follow Isaiah chapter 9. It starts out with Galilee of the Gentiles and this light dawns over the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Well, where does Isaiah 9 take us? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given... And the government shall rest on his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And you say, how will that happen? Haven't you seen the world? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Jesus starts his kingship in enemy territory. And this is why his message is about the gospel of the kingdom. Many times we get this wrong as believers, but he says that the gospel of the kingdom Excuse me, the kingdom of God is at hand. And there's a lot of individuals who might read this one way or another. How many of you have heard of a man by the name of Ben Shapiro? Show of hands, Ben Shapiro. All right, you awake? Okay, he's probably the most popular conservative podcaster right now. He's also an Orthodox Jew. 
And in a recent interview, he was asked why he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And his response was, well, the Tanakh, what we would call the Old Testament, presents Jesus as this political figure. He's a political leader that comes to liberate Israel and the Jews and rule from David's throne forever. And so you look at Jesus, and well, that's clearly not what happens. Many of us interpret the Bible the way Ben Shapiro, an unbelieving Orthodox Jew, interprets the work and ministry of Jesus. I would submit to us all that we should not fall on that side hermeneutically of what do we do with, with Jesus. Jesus himself arrives and says the kingdom of God is at hand. This word at hand, engizo, is used for, for an imminent arrival. When Jesus is approaching Jerusalem in Mark 11, he's about to get there. Like he's, he's right there. He's looking at it in the distance. It says he's at hand. He's about to arrive. When Jesus says in Mark 14, 42, that his betrayer is at hand, Judas is about to arrest him. When does Judas arrest him? Later that night. That's what it means to be at hand. What at hand doesn't mean is that the kingdom of God is T minus 2,019 years away and counting. But this is what we often do with it. We isolate the kingdom of God as this thing that's purely future. And Jesus didn't do anything in a political sense at all. Now, all he did was come to die for sins, but all of the kingship, the dominion, the rule over the world, that's all entirely exclusively future. But Jesus doesn't just rule hearts. He rules the nations already, presently, from heaven. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. He's not just my private, personal, individual lord. He really is the only lord, the only authority over every single person in this room, this city, this planet. And while I would love to get into it, we read through all of up to verse 31. You see that as soon as Jesus wrests this authority out of Satan's hands, he says, the kingdom is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. That newfound authority that Jesus has seized is tested immediately in three ways and displayed in three ways. First, in the calling of the first disciples, verses 16 through 20. He calls to the sons of Zebedee. He says, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And throughout the Old Testament, fishers of men is referring to this ingathering of God's true people that would happen after the, gen, uh, after the, the exile. Jeremiah 16, 16, look it up. But they immediately, what do they do? They follow him. He has an authority. He's Lord. He has the authority to call disciples. He has authority to cast out spirits and to command demons. And you see that in verses 21 to 28, he goes into the synagogue, which is demon-infested. What does that tell you about the state of unbelieving Israel at the time? He goes into this demon-infested synagogue, and what does he do? Not only does he cast out this demon, but these comments are made. Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. See, he wasn't just standing up there nervous on a Saturday Sabbath morning and saying, well... Uh, this one rabbi, Rabbi Gamaliel, says this, and he's reading the footnotes on the footnotes on the footnotes. He's speaking as one who has authority. He is the word of God. He speaks with authority. And then in verse 27, what is this? After he's commanded the demon. A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. This is why we cheated a little bit with the title of the message this morning. The title of the message this morning is A New Teaching with Authority. 
We're not getting into this portion of the text in detail today, but suffice to say that Jesus proves his authority in the way that he teaches, in the way that he preaches. He has the authority to call disciples, to command demons, and even to cleanse diseases. And you see that he immediately goes to the house of Simon and Andrew, and he heals Simon's mother-in-law. He's undoing the effects of the fall one by one, even down to the ailments in people's bodies. Jesus moves from approval to affliction and finally to full authority over the kingdom. But an objection might remain. Well, what does all of this authority have to do with the gospel? He's proclaiming, after all, verse 14, the gospel of God. I thought the gospel was about how I can be saved. The gospel has to do with forgiveness of sins. The gospel does have to do with forgiveness of sins. Absolutely. We must affirm that. But notice the context here. He's coming to Israel. Israel had this special covenant relationship with God. And if you look at Deuteronomy 28 and 29, you'll see there's blessings and there's curses. There's terms and conditions. How many of you are iTunes users or Google Play users, right? And every once in a while, you'll get a push notification that says our terms and conditions have been updated. And you have to click and pretend that you read it. God knows who you are. He can see you sinning every time you check that box. I don't read them either. Don't worry. But there are terms and conditions on this relationship that God has with Israel. And one of the terms and conditions on the Israelites was that if they disobeyed God's law, their enemies would rule them. They would be exiled. And they would come back in, but they would still remain under their enemies. And this is why we find ourselves in the first century here. We, We tune in, we open up to Mark, and Israel is under the rule of the Roman Empire. They were under the covenant curses there for their sin. And so God is getting ready to give them something better than law, better than these bare terms and conditions. He's bringing in a new covenant. He's about to bring redemption. He's about to bring forgiveness of sins. And that means there's going to be a new ruler in charge too, not just the enemy Gentile nations. He's going to rule them and he's going to redeem them. Rule and redemption are inextricably linked. How does God begin the Ten Commandments? Exodus 21. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Israel. Therefore, and he gives them his commandments. See, God's authority and his ability to forgive sin are inextricable from each other. Jesus can forgive you this day if you don't know him personally because he's in charge. Because he died, he rose, he rules, and that gives him the authority to forgive you. Nothing else gives him that authority. And so here's the response that this demands of us. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. These are inseparable things from each other. He lists two, but it's one thing. It's two sides of the same coin. John Calvin says this, commenting on, well, why does he separate them? Why does he separate this twofold response, repent and believe? Why not just one thing, right? He says, not only... Is our duty enjoined on us, but the grace and power of obedience are at the same time offered. So, how hard is it to repent? Hard. Incredibly hard. 
We have a sinful nature. We're dead in our sins. We cannot do it in our own strength. So Jesus doesn't just come and repeat the message of John the Baptist and say, repent, change your life, turn from your sins, hate what God hates. If he had only said that, we might respond, I I can't. I can't do it in myself. A leopard can't change its spots. But he also says, repent and believe in the gospel. And so Calvin continues, it's as though he had said, the Lord commands you to turn to himself, but as you cannot accomplish this by your own endeavors, he promises the spirit of regeneration. And therefore you must receive this grace by faith. So first he commands this about turn, away from sin, repentance. You have to have a decisive break with your old life. You cannot look the same. But repentance isn't this work that you do right before you trust in Jesus as your Savior in order for him to, you know, in order to merit something from God. Repentance is a gift of God. It's a gift that comes to us from God, 2 Timothy 2.25. It's something that God must grant And he does it in the gospel. When you see Jesus, when you behold him, when your eyes are open to who he is and how glorious his grace is, the first and most immediate visible fruit of that is that you repent. So your eyes are opened and you see your old life is not as attractive as you thought it was. The sin that you held dear becomes ugly and you desire to follow him. Repent and believe. Faith is the means by which we're saved. Not just faith in itself in some abstract sense. It's not, well, have faith. Faith in something. The object of faith matters a lot more than the strength of that faith itself. The object of faith is the gospel. It's what Christ was doing in being the new Adam. It's what Christ is about to do just as he had moved from affliction to authority. We're about to see, isn't that exactly what the cross is? Jesus is afflicted, but he is exalted, and he's given authority. He undergoes hardship and suffering, and but out of that he emerges as one who's able to save and to rule. It's a preview of the pattern of the cross moving into the crown believe in this gospel and in that you'll have the strength to repent and as you look at this text I think it's interesting you know you look at this and this is the first that you've seen reference to the gospel you see it in the first verse the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then he proclaims the gospel of God and he says repent and believe in the gospel Mark and Jesus both seem to be assuming that everybody knows what this gospel is what is the gospel In Isaiah 52, turn quickly with me there, Isaiah 52, this again is, I think, what all of Jesus' hearers would have had in mind. This promise given 800 years prior to that to the people of Israel, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings gospel, brings good news, who publishes peace who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's the kingdom of God. God is in charge. He's reigning. Not just the enemies that are over you. God is reigning and is in charge. But then what happens as Isaiah 52 follows on? If you're counting, 
What comes after 52? 53, Isaiah 53, and it's the song of the suffering servant. We see that this one in whom God reigns was despised, verse 3, and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Verse 4, surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The gospel is the good news of the rule and the redemption of Messiah. He comes to be in charge. He comes to die. Maybe that's why the Ben Shapiro's of the world don't want him. He has authority. But this is a bloody gospel. There's affliction before authority. And so, in closing our application, how do we live in light of this? First, we must repent. We have to look and see, have I repented? Have I undergone this decisive break from the old life that Jesus commands? The sins that I once loved, am I growing to hate them more by more, day after day? Do I continue to indulge them? And it's not really making a a difference to me. Do I have evidence that there's new life in me? Do I have a repentant posture day in and day out? As a church, do we model repentance? When there's wrong that's been done in our midst, Do we pull it out? Do we name it? Do we repent of it? Do we put it under the blood so that we can put it behind us? Or do we just sweep it under the rug? We must repent. Second, we must believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel, Jesus says in verse 15. He can forgive us because he's the one who died and rose and rules and reigns. We have to cling to that. He's the better Adam. He undoes what Adam did. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And listen, again, as a church, do we evidence this together? When we come into this room on Sunday mornings and throughout the week, does it look like we're here for Jesus? Or does it look like we're here for other things, personal agendas, other motivations, looking good in the eyes of others? Or do we evidence in our gatherings that we're here because of a shared trust in the gospel? Do we judge one another while preaching a gospel of grace? Do we look down on each other? Do we keep long records instead of short ones? Would we invite an unbeliever to come to our church? Or would we say, well, we've got some issues. Try that church down the street. Would we bring a non-Christian here? Are we about the gospel? And third, we are to follow. And you see that that's the command that Jesus gives to the sons of Zebedee. In the next few verses there, he commands them to follow him. But listen, if Jesus has wrested this authority out of Satan's hands, then we're responsible to walk under the authority of Christ and to walk in the authority of Christ. So first we submit to him as our Lord because he's saved us, because he's redeemed us. And second, we live in the boldness and power that's afforded to us by that authority. Ephesians 2.22, he has put all things under his, Jesus' feet, and given him as head over all things to the church. So Jesus is Lord of the universe, and he is given to us. Are we living like that's true? Are we bold as we share the gospel, as we brace for the conflict that will come in the wildernesses of the Christian life, as we stare down sin and Satan and unbelief? Are we doing that with boldness?
afforded to us by the authority of the risen Christ. Do we, like Jesus in the synagogue, do we teach as one who has authority, as one who knows the one with all authority? Or do we stick to the footnotes? Repent, believe, and follow. Father, as we close this time and reflect on your word, we thank you for this beautiful truth that Jesus was tempted in all points as we were, yet did not sin. And he learned obedience through what he suffered, and now he has received all authority, all kingship, all rule. He's died and risen. He's paid the penalty for our sins so that we, from every nation that Satan used to rule freely, can now come and be in this new kingdom, this new order established by your son, and know him personally through repentance and faith. God, let us be a church that exemplifies repentance. Let us be broken over sin. If there's sin in our midst that hasn't been addressed, let it be revealed and repented of, brought under the blood. Let full reconciliation and redemption happen there. And let us also be a church that's visibly about the gospel so that unbelievers would come to us, so that they would see Jesus put on display just as we want to display you now in our worship. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I think it's incredibly humbling that everything that Alex has talked